Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association. I'm Dr. Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 16th of April 2018 and this is episode number 59. On this week's Dispatches podcast, I talk to Andrea Hetherington about her new book on British widows in the Great War, published in April by Pen and Sword. I spoke to Andrea from her home in God's Own County, Yorkshire. Andrea, welcome to the Dispatches pod- pod- podcast. Can you start by telling us how you became interested in the Great War and in particular widows? Yes, thanks, Tom. Thanks for inviting me. Um, I've had an interest in the Great War since I was at school, really. And then I've more recently found that interest turning into writing about it. I wrote a book on a local cemetery's links with the First World War as part of a heritage lottery-funded project. Started to work with the Legacies of War team at the University of Leeds on various bits and pieces, and it's gone from there, really. The interest in widows really starts with my own family history, both old and new. My great-grandmother was widowed by the Great War, and my own mother was widowed when I was a child, though not due to the war, but an industrial accident. There are actually some parallels in the the struggles and problems they faced over 50 years apart. Um, I was invited to contribute a chapter to an anthology edited by Dr. Peter Little called Britain and the Widening War, and found that I had such a lot of material on widows that it justified a complete book, so here we are. So, how many widows were there in the First World War? Well, figures vary various reasons Um, but the Ministry of Pensions reported in 1922 that there were 235,233 widows in receipt of pensions at that time. The actual numbers may have been higher as this only includes those who actually got pensions. There'll have been others who were never eligible in the first place or who'd lost their pensions or had remarried as 40% of widows did and the numbers would have fluctuated over time. These figures were way above anything which had been predicted. Kitchener himself, who, of course, as we know, was right about many aspects of the war, got his figures hopelessly wrong, claiming that the conflict would produce no more than 50,000 war widows. But, of course, all of the casualties were seriously underestimated. As we know, by December 1920, we've had an estimated 700,000 British deaths or thereabouts. So there was a serious underestimate of the toll the war would take on the country. So when a woman or a wife heard about the death of her husband, how was that news conveyed to her? It was conveyed in various means. Officially, the official news of her death would come from the war office, either by means of a telegram, if he was an officer, or just a letter, if he was an ordinary soldier or sailor. However, the war office letter was often not the first news a widow would get. Often a comrade or a commanding officer would write a letter to a wife which would beat the official communications. Or sometimes, if the man had spent any time in hospital and had died there, a nurse from the ward would write... The postal service, as we know, to and from the front was remarkably efficient, much faster than today. So these unofficial letters from pals and uh, and comrades and nurses would often arrive before the official war office notification. Sometimes letters were unfortunately timed. For example, the morning post might contain letters from the man saying he was well, and the afternoon post might bring news of his death. Or having had the dreaded notification, women might receive letters from their dead husbands in in the forthcoming days and weeks. Now, for those who were just listed as missing, the wait must have been interminable. 
Women will place advertisements in newspapers, contact regimental associations, news agencies like the Red Cross to find, find, try and find news of their husbands. Um, for one of our widows, Annie Blackburn, it was seven months after her husband was reported missing that she was finally told he was dead and others waited even longer. And there was also confusion at the war office with the large number of casualties involved, similar names, similar uh, regimental numbers. And sometimes incorrect information was sent to families, for example, that husbands were dead when they'd simply been wounded and vice versa. And one woman I have in the book actually attends her own husband's funeral only to find him very much alive and stood amongst the mourners. So what challenges um, did an individual widow face on the, on the bereavement or the loss of her husband? The immediate challenge for most widows was undoubtedly the financial one. Now, during a husband's service, they would have been getting some money from the army in the form of separation allowance, but that wasn't designed to replace the, the husband's family wage. Separation allowance was set at a rate which had nothing to do with how much he was earning in civilian life and also set at a, a rate lower than it might have been to take out the fact that it was the army that was now seeing to her husband's daily needs so the woman didn't need his portion of, of the family budget. Now, pensions operated on the same basis, but clearly they were no longer temporary now. You were going to have to live on that money for the rest of your life, essentially. So women are expected to economise now that the husband wasn't coming home. While he was serving, they were expected to keep his house in good state for him to come back to. But they were seriously expected to move if they had to and downsize once the news came that he was actually dead. One case I've got in Liverpool had a woman who was paying 12 shillings and 6 pence in rent for her house, and that was the same amount as she was now getting on a war widow's pension for herself and a child. She clearly couldn't afford to keep that house. If you couldn't downsize, and many women lived in very difficult housing conditions, uh, much worse than we're used to today, then you had to generate money from elsewhere. Sometimes this involved taking in lodgers, but that was frowned upon by the pension authorities, especially when there were children in the house. So many women, in order to make ends meet, had to try and get work of some kind, often in households where they wouldn't have done so if their husband was alive. Now, in some areas, work was available for women. The big industrial centres where there were munitions and engineering's work, for example. But in some areas, like mining areas, there wasn't any real work for women. Even if there was work, childcare was a problem because there were few creche facilities available. And again, some local war pensions authorities weren't keen on women working if they had small children, so wanted them to get permission before they did so. Other authorities wanted women to put some of their children in the workhouse to free them to go out to work so they wouldn't be a burden on the, the taxpayer. Some women worked in the home doing things like neighbours washing or piecework, but this wasn't very well paid compared to jobs which you could get outside. One widow in Leeds took in washing, including pledges from the local pawn shop in return for getting her pick of the items. She would then either sell those finds on, or in the case of a particularly fine tablecloth, rent it out. Now, of course, those who were able to work during the war to make ends meet often found themselves immediately out of work on its conclusion. This was not only in war industries like munitions, simply because the need was no longer there, but across the board, because employers were welcoming back returning soldiers in favour of women workers. It wasn't just financial. War widows had certain standards of behaviour that they were expected to adhere to. They were expected to conduct themselves in, in a dignified manner. No excessive grieving, variety and a quiet dignity were the standards expected. Now, any lapse in those standards would be punished either by local gossip, the law or the pension authorities. So what help was available to widows, such as charitable support or state pensions? You have to bear in mind this was pre the welfare state, where on the whole people were on their own when disaster struck. Some welfare reforms had already been introduced before the war, 
old age pensions, for example, and the national insurance scheme, though it was very limited in scope compared to what we're used to. Women and a lot of men didn't have the vote, and war widows before the First World War were not automatically taken care of by the state. For the army to look after you as a wife before the First World War, you had to be what was known as on the strength. What that means is that you'd married with the permission of the army. Now, the numbers of such wives were deliberately limited. There were some changes, and the Second Boer War was the first time, the turn of the century, that pensions were given to war widows. But you had to be on the strength in order to get one. Now, this was such an ingrained concept within the army that it actually took the administrators completely by surprise when the government announced shortly after war was declared in 1914 that all wives would be eligible for widows' pensions rather than just those that were on the strength. Now, the eligibility criteria for a war widow's pension in the Great War meant that not every widow got one. Initially, you had to be married at the time your man enlisted. His death had to be wholly due to his war injury and happened within seven years of him getting that injury. And his death couldn't be down to any fault on his part. Now, some of these criteria changed as the war went on, but they did cause a lot of women to be without pensions. The amounts weren't generous. A private's wife at the start of the war would get five shillings a week, plus an extra allowance for any children. And these figures haven't changed since the Boer War. Though they did eventually go up, they were nowhere near the amount required to comfortably raise a family without the male breadwinner. The first inquiry that Parliament did through a select committee in 1915 heard evidence from a number of employers, including the Port of London Authority, who gave them information about wage levels amongst their staff. Now, even the lowest paid labourer on the books of the Port of London Authority was only 27 shillings a week. Widows didn't get a pension automatically. They had to apply for one and prove that they were entitled. They had to fill in a form, have it countersigned by a police officer or a justice of the peace, and had to send copies of any marriage certificate and birth certificates for the children with the application form. Now, if you weren't eligible for a war widow's pension, you were on your own. Ordinary widow's pensions didn't come in until 1925 and then in very limited circumstances. You could approach charities, but they were very much governed by the Victorian principles of self-help. And they were administered by middle classes who had very clear ideas about who should be eligible and how any charitable money should be spent. For many charities, strict supervision went hand in hand with any monies given out. And many women were not prepared to subject themselves to this level of scrutiny and the inevitable loss of self-respect which ensued from resorting to charity. Some charities wouldn't help war widows because they believed that state provision was perfectly adequate and that if you didn't qualify for it, that was due to some fault on your part. And the last resort for war widows was the poor law. The board of guardians who were not keen to help war widows to any meaningful degree on the whole Boards of Guardians were regularly telling widows to go into the workhouse or give up some of their children to go into the workhouse or industrial schools, as they were known as the price for any assistance from the poor law guardians. So if you didn't get a war widow's pension, you were really in difficulties. And it has been said that it was life or death to a family, whether they were eligible for the war widow's pension. And were there any circumstances when these pensions were withdrawn? Yes, there were. Unlike pensions granted to disabled male veterans, war widows' pensions were always vulnerable. You see, they were not granted as of right, but seen as part of the royal favour, to be withdrawn at any time if a widow was seen as unworthy of that. Any kind of behaviour which could be construed as misconduct could see a woman lose her pension. Now, often this was an accusation of cohabiting with another man. The pension was seen as the state standing in place of the dead husband, and if the woman had another man, it was his job to support her and the state's obligation ended. 
Now, this became something of a gossip's charter, and people were encouraged to spy on their neighbours and report them to the authorities if they were cohabiting. Anonymous letters poured into the Ministry of Pensions. The police were routinely involved in investigations into the widow's conduct, and local disputes, jealousy and bitterness were allowed to dictate a widow's financial future. If you were found guilty, as far as the pension authorities were concerned, of any misbehaviour, you could have your pension removed completely, or it would be administered in trust with you getting vouchers to spend in specific shops rather than cash. Now, there were something like 3,000 such investigations every year, and you had less than a 50-50 chance of getting out of that investigation with no further action being taken. Once you're on their radar, the scrutiny would go on for years. Voters' registration lists were used to track down cohabitees, which seems like a particularly snide trick using a woman's hard-fought right to the vote to deprive her of another hard-fought right to a pension. As with charitable assistance, middle-class standards of behaviour were the ones applied, and if you didn't fit this in some way, you were in trouble. One woman had a pension removed for having soldiers at her house very frequently. Now, this was partly because she was supplementing her pension by doing their washing, but that wasn't enough for the authorities. She had to sell a number of household items to make ends meet, and it took the intervention of her MP to have the pension eventually restored to her direct after a long period of supervision. Criminal convictions for women could also result in the loss of a war widow's pension, especially when any kind of indecent conduct was involved. Again, this was different for a man who could only lose his pension on a conviction for treason. Now, you could also lose a pension which wasn't really yours as a war widow at the time. What I mean by that is that obviously many men came out of the war disabled and were granted disability pensions. Now, that was to keep the whole family. But when they died, women were not automatically eligible for the portion of that pension. He had to be getting a certain level of pension for some of it to go to, uh, to his wife. But also, it was up to the wife to prove that his death was due to or hastened by his war injury. Now, as these veterans started to die, the Ministry of Pensions started to look at this whole situation again, and they started basically to retrospectively review the original grant of a pension to these men. Uh, and they called them cases of erroneous entitlement. And in such cases, they would fight a war widow's application to have her portion of the pension. And they would fight that all the way through a tribunal, trying to find a loophole, basically, in a man's medical records, going back to his childhood, in his conduct, in records with the Friendly Society, to try and find some way of disallowing her her pension. So there were a number of ways in which you could, you could lose a pension. Um, and women were certainly subjected to different standards of, of behaviour. So how did bereavement affect widows' perception of the war? It's difficult to generalise because with different widows obviously had different opinions. Many were undoubtedly proud of their husband's service and sacrifice, and there was a certain cachet which went with the title of war widow. Now, when the word war was removed from widows' pension books in the 1970s, there were protests as the women wanted the distinction to be maintained between them and ordinary widows. Many engaged with the war effort both before and after their own bereavement. Lots of wealthy war widows became VAD nurses and hosted wounded soldiers on their own country estates. But lots of ordinary widows wanted to do their bit too, either in nursing, munitions work, things of that nature. However, the other side of that is there were women that were very bitter about their loss. This especially came to the fore when they realised how poorly the state would look after them in the future. 
And as the war ended, there was also a degree of resentment at the amount being spent on war memorials and peace day celebrations when there were war widows who were struggling to make ends meet. For example, um, Alice Greenwood of Todmorden, she wrote a letter to her local paper on hearing that money was to be spent on fireworks treats for the children in her local peace day celebrations as a ratepayer and a woman who tried to run her husband's grocery delivery business in his absence he was killed in 1917 she was appalled that her money would be spent in such a way when she was struggling and she wrote to the paper husbands and fathers have died for the state but the state will be a long time before it is as good a husband and father as the one i have known finally andrea where can people get your book from well, hopefully for more good bookshops and the usual outlets. You can order it direct from penandsword.co.uk and I'm told it's going to be out at the end of April. Andrea, thank you very much for your time. No problem. Thanks for inviting me, Tom. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time...